Sorry, with the children and with us. I think um, Sister uh, Marjorie has a special music for us now. Okay, good morning. The topic of my song this morning is Jesus is coming to earth again. And I just want you to listen to the words very carefully. Jesus is coming to earth again. What if it were today? Coming in power and love to reign. What if it were today? Coming to claim his chosen bride, all the redeemed and purified. Over this whole world scattered wide, what if it were today? Glory, glory, joy to my heart will bring. Glory, glory, when we shall crown him king. Satan's dominion will then, Satan's dominion will then be o'er. Oh, that it were today, sorrow and sign shall be no more. Oh, that it were today, then shall the dead in Christ arise, caught up to meet him in the sky. Where shall these glories meet our eyes? What if it were today? Glory, glory, joy to my heart will bring. Glory, glory, when we shall crown him king. Glory, glory, Watching in gladness and not in fear, if he should come today, signs of his coming multiplied, morning light breaking eastern skies. Watch, for the time is drawing nigh, what if it were today? Joy to my heart will bring glory, glory, when we shall crown him, crown him king. Glory, glory, haste to prepare the way. Glory, glory, Jesus will come someday. Thank you, sisters. Well, you're my sisters in Christ. <laughs> All right. Our scripture reading this morning is from John 3, verses 16 and 17. And I don't see Jim here, so I will read it for him today. Um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Good morning and happy Sabbath. 
I uh, see a lot of familiar faces, and some of them is the, the mask slips down, I recognize, because when the masks are over faces, it's hard to recognize people sometimes. But it's good to be here again. I uh, have been told by my, my wife, who wasn't able to join me today, that I, I need to do a, a short introduction, even when I look over the congregation and they look familiar to me, because I never know if there's a, a visitor or not, since I'm a visitor. So... Um, Adam Case is my name, and I am a pastor here in the Wisconsin Conference. And if you are are visiting, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is part of a worldwide movement that takes seriously the the, um, charge from Jesus to spread the gospel to the whole world, as well as to participate in sharing the three angels' message uh, in this important time. And uh, So if you are visiting today, this congregation is part of a worldwide movement, which is exciting. And people ask me sometimes specifically what I do. My job title is now ministerial director, and that means that I work for the pastors of the Wisconsin Conference. I uh, provide support for them and, and assistance and also work with local churches, and it's a blessing to do that. Um, I was most recently here as we were in the process of... Um, looking for a new pastor. And Pastor Marco, it's good to see you here. Last time I saw you you here, you were by yourself. And there's, uh, (laughs) we're excited, Jasmine, to see you here as well today. I want to say just a brief word about the the state of the world that we're in, in the Wisconsin Conference. And then I'm going to have Pastor Marco come up and we're going to do a a, um, short uh, ceremony uh, that that, uh, we find in the Bible. Um, there's been questions um, probably in your own life and in your own uh, house as you've been dealing with issues these last six months. And boy, 2020 has been a strange year, hasn't it? Um, People have asked, how is the conference doing? And there are are conferences in the North American division that have been hit really hard. There have been some conferences that have laid off 10, 20, 30 40 employees across North America in different conferences. And I I know that God is with those conferences and God will continue to work as they struggle through the challenges that they are facing. I will tell you this morning in the Wisconsin conference, we feel very blessed because we have not been experiencing some of those same challenges that our brothers and sisters across North America have been facing. That doesn't mean that we won't. We know that God has helped us to where we're at, and whether the things go up or down in the future, God will be with us. One of the many indicators of the health of a conference is, is tithe. And tithe is, uh, the Bible tells us, a representation of our honesty. It's a representation of, of how God has blessed us and us returning to God a portion of what he has given us. And tithe in the Wisconsin conference year to date is up about 7%. And that is easily double, if not triple, what is normal um, on a year. Usually for the last 10 years, we have gone up, um, you know, one or two or three percent on a good year. Um, I have no explanation for that other than we, we praise God for the faithfulness of, of each one of us as we are faithful to God as God blesses us. Um, had tithe been down, like other conferences are facing, I would still be thankful to God for being with us, for guiding us, for helping us. But it is nice to be in a position at the moment where we're not having to have some of those hard conversations other conferences are. So we're, we're thankful to God for that. And thankful, thankful to each of you for your faithfulness as well. Pastor Marco, I'd like to have you come up. It's uh, exciting to be here with you today. One of the things that we do for each of our our pastors, especially as they're starting out in ministry, is we do an ordination just like we do for local church elders. And this morning I'm going to have a prayer of ordination in a moment, ordaining Pastor Marco as a, as a local church elder. Pastor Marco, you look far better than I did when I was ordained as an elder many years ago. I was serving as a youth pastor, and that Sabbath the youth group was out on a street corner collecting money they were doing in-gathering. And we had orange vests on and blue jeans and T-shirts, and we had cans. And I was out there, and, and they were bringing shifts of kids out and taking shifts of kids back. And one of the um, times they came out, they said, uh, Pastor Case, we need you back at the church right now. Why? Well, the, the pastor, the senior pastor, said it's time to do your ordination as an elder. 
And I, I looked at my, my orange vest, and I said, I'm not sure this was what I was expecting. But I drove back, and I walked up to the front of the church, and, and we did the, the ordination uh, service. And then I got back in my car and went back with my orange vest. I, I think I took my orange vest off. But today, I want to read the passage that's found in Titus chapter 1, and it talks about uh, the qualifications of an elder. Uh, Paul, the apostle, is writing here, and he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, he's speaking to, to Titus at this point, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Every time I read that passage, I go, well, I don't know anybody that lives up to all of that. I think that sounds like somebody who's perfect. And I think there's some good news in that passage. God has a high standard, but he doesn't ask us to live up to that standard by ourselves. God says, I'll help you to be what I have called you to be. Those in this congregation that are ordained ministers or ordained as elders, um, they're still not perfect. Um, my wife reminded me recently, I give my wife a hard time, but that I'm not perfect either. But God works with us to live up to the standard that he has, has asked us to live up to. So this morning, um, I'd like to have us kneel, and we will do a, a prayer of ordination um, as an elder in this uh, local congregation. Um, you are welcome to kneel with us if you want to as far as possible as we have this prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we are gathered here as a congregation today with uh, Pastor Marco Vigil, we thank you for his call to ministry. We look forward to his uh, ordination as a a gospel minister in the, the near future, but this morning as we acknowledge his call to work for you, to to serve you um, in the capacity as an elder as well as a pastor. We thank you, Lord, for that calling, that high calling, and that where he falls short, you make up the difference. And Lord, each one of us falls short because we are, are sinners, and we thank you for your grace and your mercy. I ask that you would fill Pastor Marco with the Holy Spirit, in a, a, an even greater way moving forward, and that as he seeks to uh, function as a pastor and uh, soon as a, a husband, that you will use him in a mighty way to bring the, the gospel to the communities he works in, to be a shepherd to the flock that you have given him, and as he works day by day, that he would remember to follow you. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that you have given Pastor Marco to work for you, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. And uh, you'll get to have a good seat down here, better than if you were sitting up here with me. I, um, like many people, have a GPS in my window And my wife has given me a hard time before because I would be in the process of a U-turn and she would look at me and say, why are you making a U-turn? And I would say, "Um, because I missed my corner. And she would say, the GPS was telling you you needed to turn. And I would say, yeah, I wasn't listening. (laughs) And she said, why do you have it on? And I thought, you know, I don't actually know. And so I turned the voice off because I had stopped listening to it. I have a watch that connects to my GPS, and when I get near a corner, the watch vibrates, and that has been a huge help, because I'll be driving along, and my wrist will vibrate, and I'll look at the GPS, and, oh, I've got a turn here. This is good. 
This morning, I found myself doing a U-turn on the way here, and I thought, how did I miss that? And then I realized my watch was sitting in the seat next to me. (laughs) God gives us uh, waymarks in life, and we're going to talk about those. But there are signposts, there are waymarks all around us in this world. If you ever watched the old television show MASH, there was a a signpost that had had um, arrows pointing all different directions, saying how many miles to this town or to that town. Um, If you go walking on trails or go hiking, there are often signposts to help you know that you're on the trail, that you're headed the direction that um, you want to be going. And we find those signposts or those waymarks to be extremely helpful. I mentioned earlier a little bit about about, uh, the world that we live in, and Even for good Christians, I think there are some questions that are natural to ask. If you've ever read the Psalms, you know that David was not hesitant about telling God how he felt. And sometimes I read some of what David wrote and I go, whoa, I'm not sure I would be that brave to say what what he has just said to God. But I heard a preacher once say, "There's, there's no sense in hiding from God what you're feeling because he already knows anyway. And so when David told God how he was feeling, God didn't go, oh, I didn't know you felt that way, because God knew what was in David's heart. And I think that there are some things that if we're honest with ourselves, go through our mind from time to time, and we'll ask questions like, as we look at this world around us, is God really in control? Now, that may not be a comfortable question to ask, and some of us would like to say, no, that thought never goes through our mind. But I bet you would be surprised by how many people, even in this room today, even if we know the answer, that that thought still goes through our mind. Is God really in control of my life? Is God really leading my life? And you can look at the economy. Economists said the best thing to do if you were fortunate enough to have a 401k um, when the market crashed was to just not look at it. Um, I didn't take that advice. I should have. Um, COVID-19 has been, been crazy, regardless of where, where you come down on your, your thoughts and beliefs on that. And I will say that in my, my 20 years of ministering, I have seen more arguments amongst God's people over face masks than I have seen about anything else. Shutting churches down didn't get this amount of arguments. Women's ordination didn't get this number of arguments. But the wearing of face masks, now everybody's arguing about it. I've just been a little bit sad to see, as a general rule, I'm sure not in this congregation, but that God's people have been dirty with each other. Um, If you see Facebook, if you see my, my profile on Facebook, it says, Adam Case seldom checked because I seldom check my Facebook account. And I'd like people to know that they're going to have a hard time getting in touch with me that way. And part of it is I, I, I can't handle the way that people use Facebook, that they would never say to somebody in person what they're willing to type on Facebook. Many people. The violence in this world, the, the race relation issues, the, the, I mean, it could go on and on, the natural disasters. My in-laws um, sent us pictures from their house in California out the back porch as they could see the fires that were burning. And my father-in-law said last night that the wind changed direction and um, the smoke has started to clear up and they could actually see more than, than a few hundred yards out of their, their back porch. Um, none of the houses where they lived were, were damaged, but just a couple of miles away, it was. We look at all of this nastiness in the world around us, and, and there are people tempted to ask, where is God? Is God really control, in control? Is God leading my life? And that's some of what I want to address this morning. And I'm going to do it through the story of Joshua. My son, his name is Joshua, In fact, he uh, has just started Academy. I don't know where the time has gone. He's a freshman at Wisconsin Academy this year. And my uh, wife uh, and I agreed that my son needed to be in a regular, consistent Sabbath school as he's been growing up. And so that meant that as I'd been traveling um, to church to church, he doesn't travel with me very often. 
Because I wanted my son to be excited to go to church, to Sabbath school, to see his friends, to worship God. And that's been successful. When Academy started, I said to my wife, do you think maybe you'll get to travel with me a little bit more? And the answer to that was yes. And for the last four weeks, my wife and son have been with me almost every week. And my son said, uh, I think it was Wednesday, said, Dad, I haven't been home on a weekend in a month. Can I stay home and Mom and I will just go to the church here? I said, yes. So I'm sad that they're not with me. But I am excited that my son likes going to his Sabbath school, likes going to his church. His name is Joshua. And we're going to spend some time talking about the biblical Joshua, not my son. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how old Joshua was when the Israelites left Egypt. But he could have been a a teenager. He could have been even younger than that. He uh, could have been maybe 19, 20. Um, We're not exactly sure. But when Joshua left, I imagine that all of the things he saw as they were leaving Israel were were emblazoned in his mind for life. The miracles that took place, the plagues that happened in Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea with these massive walls of water. And I don't know if Joshua's going by and he walks over to the wall of water and reaches his hand in to see if it's really wet. I, I would be tempted to. Or maybe I would have been tempted to get across as quickly as possible before the water came back in. I don't know. Moses saw some leadership potential in Joshua. Moses chose Joshua and 11 other people and sent them into the land of Canaan, the land of promise, the land that the Bible calls a land flowing with milk and honey. Kids, when I was your age and I heard pastors or the Bible talk about this land flowing with milk and honey, I I imagined rivers of milk. Maybe there was a chocolate river of milk and and, uh, a, a river of white milk. Maybe there was even a river of soy milk. It doesn't say for sure. And, and flowing with milk and honey. Now, as adults, we realize that that's a way of saying that the, it was a, a land that was very fruitful, a land that, that provided for the people that lived there. But I kept thinking, a river of honey, that would be great. Get a, a handful of honey, the Winnie the Pooh cartoon. Did you ever see that, where he was eating the honey? and all, all, That was me as a kid. I wanted to do that. Joshua goes into the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey with 11 other spies. And they come back and give their report. And Caleb and Joshua, two of the spies, have this wonderful report about how great the land is. They saw the milk and honey, but not the other ten. The other ten saw the obstacles. They saw the tall walls. They saw the mighty men. They saw the weapons of war. And because of their story, the Israelites found themselves wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. I saw a comic once that suggested if Moses would have been willing to stop and ask for directions, they wouldn't have been in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses, after 40 years, and this is a whole other sermon, but he makes a mistake and ultimately is, is um, punished by not being allowed to go into the land of Canaan the land that he had been looking forward to going into for well over 40 years. And one morning, Joshua wakes up in his tent and finds that he is now responsible for what most scholars believe is a group of over a million people. I don't know what your level of responsibility is in your life. I don't know if you are are a a parent in charge of of children. I don't know if you are a boss at a business that has employees that work for you. I don't know if you work for somebody else. But I have a guess that most of us are not responsible for the health and well-being of a million people. I'm sure it didn't happen this way, but I envision Joshua lifting the flap from his tent and coming out that first morning, wondering what the day is going to be like, and he sees a million people there standing, ready to go, wondering, what are we going to do now, Joshua? The burden on his shoulders. And I can't help but think that Joshua had a question. Is God really leading in my life? Is God really in control of all the things that are going on? 
And we're going to look in the book of Joshua, and if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there or, or tap there. Joshua chapter 3 and 4, we're going to spend the bulk of our time today in those two chapters. Is God really leading in my life? We see in Joshua chapter 1, or sorry, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests and the Levites bearing it, you shall, then you shall set out from the place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits, verse 4, by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. Joshua says to the children of Israel, we're going to follow God. When God goes, we're going. Where God goes is where we're going. And I think today, we've made some of those same decisions. The Wisconsin Conference has said, where God goes is where we're going. I believe this church has said, where God goes is where we're going. And I hope that each one of you have made that decision in your lives as well. We're not going to go until God goes. And when God goes, we're going to go with him. We're going to follow him. It would be nice to have a visual representation of God like the Israelites did with the ark. But Joshua says to them, when the ark of the covenant moves, we're moving. When it stays still, we're going to stay still. Verse 5, Joshua says to the people, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do wonders among you. Joshua says, get ready. God is about to do something. Sanctify yourselves, prepare yourselves, get ready for what God is about to do. At some level, I don't think I necessarily can say tomorrow, but don't we have that same message? Let's get ready. God is about to do something. Dare I say God is doing something, and God has been doing something, but the Bible tells us he's got even more he's going to do. Ultimately, it ends with us being in that land flowing with milk and honey, the ultimate promised land. We're waiting to see where God moves. Verse 6, Then Joshua spoke to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I'll pause right there at the end of verse 7. Joshua, I believe, is asking that question. Is God really leading in my life? Is God really in control? And God says to Joshua, today I'm going to show the people that I am leading just like I led Moses. God says, I'm going to answer your question. I want you to know that I am really in charge. Verse 8, you shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. Verse 9, so Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and a lot of ites. Behold, uh, verse 11, I'll stop right there. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of a lack of faith. Joshua says to them, God is going to work today. Well, he's tomorrow. God is going to work, and by what he does tomorrow, you will know that he is going to be faithful to do what he told us he was going to do 40 years ago. Actually, what he told Moses, what he told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what he's been saying for a long time. God is going to be faithful. Verse 11, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take for yourselves twelve men of the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe, and it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off and the waters that come from upstream, 
they shall stand as a heap. Any of you guys seen a heap of water before? I've never seen a heap of water before. But he says here, the waters of the Jordan will be cut off and they'll stand up and there shall be a heap, a heap of water. I want to pause here. I may be getting ahead of my notes. I'm not sure. But God asked Joshua to do things the hard way. Now, that's not unusual for God. They're not the hard way for God. But wouldn't it have been easier for Joshua to say to the priests, God is going to part the waters of the Jordan River, and once those waters are parted, you can just walk right through. Pick up the ark and you walk through. But that's not what God does. God says, pick up the ark and walk over to the Jordan, and when the feet of the Wouldn't it have been far easier if you are, are one of those priests? You know, the human side of us says, boy, this is uncomfortable. What happens if I touch the water and nothing happens? And I just get my sandals wet. But they had to step out in faith that God was going to do what God said he was going to do. God didn't say, I'm going to part the waters and then step in it. He said, step in it and I will part the waters. Verse 14, so it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as those who bore the Ark of the, to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan was overflowing all its banks during the whole time of harvest, that the waters came down from upstream, stood still, and rose in a heap very far away, at Adam, the city that is beside Zaratan. So the waters that went down into the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over the opposite side, Jericho. Verse 17, Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. If you can read the screen, I'm taken by the fact of the visible illustration of this story, that when you carry the word of God, you're standing on a solid foundation. As those priests had the word of God, had the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat and the Ten Commandments in it, where they stood, they were on solid ground. We're not any different today. As I read the word of God, when we stand on the word of God, when we are carrying God's word, when we're following God's word, we're on solid ground. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read through chapter 4, but I want to tell you a little bit about it, and I would encourage you to read it. The Israelites see the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of the river. The waters are keeping up on one side. The other side of the river is just getting lower and lower as it's going down to the Dead Sea. And as the priests are standing there with the Ark of God, Joshua says, cross over. And the Israelites start to cross over. And as they are crossing over, God instructs Joshua to take those 12 men. I imagine they were muscular, burly men. Take those 12 men, tell them to go to where the priests are, and pick up 12 huge stones. I can see those men climbing, in my imagination, down to where the the bottom of the river is. It's now dry, and and the stones are down here. And they're thinking, I could get a little stone. Oh, there's a million people watching. I'm not getting a little stone. And they get the biggest stone that they can pick up because everybody's watching. And they're putting it on their shoulders, and, and they're carrying these stones to the riverbank. And as they carry these stones to the riverbank, they're sweating, and, and, and I, I imagine there's some sand that's on them, and they're, they're uh, hot, and the sun is burning, but they're carrying these stones just as they were asked to do. And in chapter 4, God instructs Joshua and says, take these stones, and I want you to set up a memorial so that when your kids walk by someday and they say, what are those stones piled up there for? you can say, let me tell you what God did. 
Let me tell you about the day when God made the Jordan River stop and pile up in a heap on one side and get dry on the other. Verse 7 of chapter 4 says, These stones shall be a memorial to the children of Israel forever. Verses 8 and 9 say, The children of Israel did so just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones from the midst of the Jordan as the Lord had spoken to Joshua according to the number of tribes of the children of Israel and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them there. We see that the Israelites set up these 12 stones, these memorial stones, these signposts, these way marks. So as the Israelites looked at Jericho that was towering above them and said, can we take the city? Somebody could point to the 12 stones and say, remember what God did. So as they, they were wandering and saying, can we get the, 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 all of those ites out of the country? Can we beat them? Can we defeat them? Somebody could point to the stones and say, remember what God did. Are we going to be able to have enough food to feed our family? Are we going to have houses to live in, roofs over our head? You could point to the stones and say, remember what God did. As God has worked in the past, it can help remind us to have faith that God will work in the future. I asked the question at the beginning, is God in control of my life? Is, is God in control of the universe? Is he in control of the economy, the COVID, race relations, the violence and, and the looting and all of the stuff in politics that are going on? And what I take away from this story is that God is asking me to ask a question of myself. What are the way marks in my life? What are the things that I can look at? What are the, the crossings of the Red Sea or the Jordan River or, or the, the feeding of the 5,000? What are the miracles that God has done in my life? And if you're like me, the first thing you say is, I don't think I've ever crossed the Red Sea. I don't think I've ever crossed the Jordan River on dry land. But what has God done in your life? What are the way marks, the signposts that he has given you? And I would encourage you this afternoon to spend a few minutes and do what I did, which was to take a piece of paper. Twelve is not a magical number, but I said, I'm going to write down twelve one for each of the stones, one for each of the tribes or the disciples. I'm going to write down 12 waymarks in my life, 12 things that God has done. And I'm not going to go through all of these today. Do you remember the days when the pastor would be able to say, because we can smell the potluck food? Do you remember those days? But I wrote some things down, and I'm going to tell you a couple of these. When I got married which has been over 21 years ago now, my grandmother had two houses. She was selling one and had two houses worth of furniture, and she gave my brother and I all of the furniture from one of their houses, and she basically furnished my first house when I got married and my brother's when he got married out of the furniture that she wasn't using. My dad and I got a a minivan. Well, my dad had the minivan. He and I got in it. We drove from Ohio, where I was living, to Florida, And when we got to Florida, we had supper with my grandmother, and then we went out to load the van with the furniture, the the U-Haul that she had rented. She said, oh, no, we already loaded that. It's ready to go. And so we put a, a dolly behind it, and we drove the minivan on it, and after driving from Ohio to Florida nonstop, eating supper with my grandmother, we got in the truck, and we headed north. It's about 8 o'clock already. My dad and I took turns driving, and we we're, we're get to the place we're in Tennessee. Uh, Marco, you know some of the mountains in Tennessee going up and down, and, and we're getting close to Kentucky, and we're going up a mountain. I was driving. My dad was asleep. We're in a fully loaded U-Haul with a car dolly behind it, towing a minivan, and I ran out of gas. I tapped my dad on the shoulder as we're going up this mountain, and I say, Dad, we ran out of gas. And he says, all right, pull over at the next uh, exit, and we'll we'll get some more gas. No, no, Dad, we're out of gas. We're going up a mountain in a fully loaded U-Haul, and we're out of gas. 60 miles an hour, 
When you're going uphill, that becomes 50 really quick. And that becomes 40. And that becomes 30. And as we're headed around a corner, we've dropped down to 30 miles an hour, which happened, I mean, happened so fast, there was an exit. And the exit went downhill. I hit the exit at 30 miles an hour, towing that minivan, and it was a long exit. I got to the bottom of that exit, and there was a gas station. And I coasted around the corner into the gas station right to a pump. (laughs) That is a way mark in my life from God who said, Adam, you've got to pay attention to the gas gauge, but I want you to know that I'm here for you. Does that mean I'm never going to run out of gas? No, that doesn't mean that, and I have twice since then. But God took that opportunity in my life to say, I want you to know that I'm here for you. I want you to know that I care for you so that later on you can look back at that pile of 12 stones and say, God does work in my life. God is active. My wife and I agreed when we got married that we were going to do a, what what some call a double tithe, pay 10% for offering, I'm sorry, 10% for tithe and 10% of our money for offering. And do you know that is so easy to say when you don't have any money? We were just married. We were both students. We didn't have any income. And we made that pledge. And I remember it was probably the third month of of, uh, being at college together, married. Um, I was a, a junior and she was a senior our first year married. And there's a whole bunch of other stories that go with that. But I I have paid the bills. She's been happy to let me do that. And I like to think of myself as being fairly good with math. I did the math, and I knew that the amount of money that we had and the amount of bills we had were not the same amount of money. And when I did the math, I was $200 short from having enough money to pay my bills, much less pay tithe and offering. And I had that wrestling match in my mind that I think that everybody who makes a pledge like that to God, God, I want to be faithful to you. Am I really going to do this? Can I really afford to do this? God will understand if I skip this once. But I made that pledge, and I prayed, and I wrote out those checks for tithe and offering, and then I paid the rest of my bills, and to this day, I can't explain it. But would you believe there were $200 left over? Math does not work that way. I guarantee you it doesn't work that way. And God has not chosen to do something like that in my life ever again in that scenario. But I believe as a newly married young person, God said, I want you and your wife to know that you've chosen to be faithful to me. I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to take care of you. Look at the pile of 12 stones There is a way mark. God has worked in my life. Let me choose one more here. I'll go with the 4-H. We'll do all stories from when I was was younger. There's many stories of when I was older. Those of you that... uh, I grew up on a farm, a dairy farm. My dad raised uh, um, beef cattle, milked cows. He... uh, I was raised as a vegetarian, and I think I was 14 when I said to my dad, what happens to these beef cattle when you sell them? And my dad said, what they do with them when they buy them is up to them. <laughs> Corn and soybeans, dairy cattle. I uh, was in 4-H, and 4-H would go to the fair every year. We would have projects, and my first project was a feeder calf, and I took care of that feeder calf. I got a fancy... Uh, um, show stick that you could use to prod their feet into the right place so they could stand. Truly skills that a feeder calf never actually needed, but something that was fun to do as a kid. And we worked all summer with that animal. I would feed him. I would take him out uh, for walks, and we would teach him how to stand correctly, get his feet in the right places. And then fair time comes, and fair time was fun, not just because you got to show your animals, but because there were rides everywhere and all kinds of junk food that my mom would never normally give me. I did learn, Pastor Marco, two strawberry milkshakes before you get on the tilt-a-whirl. Not a good idea. We got our animals in the barn, and my 4-H leader came up and said, 
you're showing for your feeder calf is at 1 o'clock on Sabbath afternoon. And you could have seen me melt there, kind of. Oh. Well, there's a whole summer for nothing. I've worked all summer with this calf so that I could show him at the fair, and the showing is at 1 o'clock on Sabbath afternoon. Huh. I don't know what my parents would have done. They, at the very least, gave me the illusion that I had a choice in the matter. And they asked me, what do you want to do? And I said, let's go to church. And so when Sabbath came, instead of going to the fairgrounds with all of the rest of my 4-H club to get ready for the show that we had worked for all summer, I went to church. Now, I'd be lying to you if I said my mind was at church. My body was at church. My mind was at the fair. But I did my best to participate in Sabbath school and to church, and, and we went through all the, um, the, you know, the motions of Sabbath, potluck and everything. And you know, right in the heart of summer, the sun doesn't go down until like Wednesday. But my parents said, the sun's going down. Let's, let's go. There's a park that's near, near the fairgrounds. Let's go and have sundown worship there. And then we'll drive over and see what happened today. And we did that. And I, I remember having the worship. I have no idea what the worship was about. But I remember having the worship with my parents and my brother. And then when worship was done, we prayed. And I wasn't excited but I was happy that I had, had stayed true to, to not completely ignoring God on the Sabbath and going to the fair. We got to the fairgrounds, and um, I don't know exactly. Um, my dad probably timed it. It was like seven minutes after sundown. You know, we got there as quick as we could. And my, my 4-H leader was at the fairgrounds gate, a place I had never seen him before. And my dad rolled the window down. He had a crank window back then. For those of you that have never seen crank windows, he rolled the window down. And my 4-H leader said, you're never going to believe what happened today. They did the 10 o'clock showing. Then they did the 11 o'clock showing. And then they did the noon showing. And when the noon showing was done, they said, the 1 o'clock showing, we're bumping to the end of the day. And he said, you've got 15 minutes. Go get your calf ready. And we drove over to the barn as quickly as we could. And any of you that have been around cattle know that cattle are not particularly concerned about where they sleep or what they sleep in. And I'm not talking pajamas. My animal was almost completely clean, which that's not normal. We stood him up. We put his halter on. We went over to the hose. I had about two square feet of uh, real estate on my animal that needed some cleaning. We did the cleaning, and uh, we dried them off, and I walked into the show ring right as the show started, and if this was a Hollywood movie, I would stand here and say, I won first prize. But I didn't. I, I didn't even place. But that was irrelevant as I stood in there and was amazed at what God had chosen to do for me as a 13-year-old boy. And I look back at that pile of 12 stones, and that's one of the way marks. As I look at COVID-19, as I look at the racial tensions around the world, as I look at the fires in California and the looting that takes place in some of our cities, and I look at all of this terribleness, and I ask myself, is God really in control? I can look at that pile of 12 stones and say, God has worked. God has done something in my life. God is alive and active. He's worked then. If he's not doing something that I can see now, it's not because he's not paying attention. He knows what's best. God has got this. Ellen White writes in a book called Christian Experience and Teachings, page 204, Um, First paragraph, in reviewing our past history, having traveled over every step of advance to our present standing, I can say, praise God. As I see what God has wrought, I am filled with astonishment and with confidence in Christ as leader. We have nothing to fear for the future except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and his teaching in our past history. 
I'll throw this in here as I'm wrapping up. The sermon was not about Moses, but Moses got tied in because he picked Joshua. Moses was supposed to lead the Israelites into Canaan. That was God's plan. But when Moses messed up and didn't get to go in, those of you that have been Bible students know that the Bible tells us that Moses is in heaven now. Do you think that Moses is in heaven saying, Lord, I'm thankful that I'm here, but I wish you would have let me into the land of Canaan? I'm thinking that's not... In fact, I think Moses would tell you if he was here, I am in the land of Canaan. I am in the promised land. There's a lot of things we don't understand right now. There's a lot of real pain in this world. And most likely, there's a lot of real pain in your life. But I believe that like Moses, when we're in heaven someday, we're not going to look at God and say, why did you do this? But instead, we're going to be able to see the big picture and say, thank you, Lord, for leading in the way that was best, even though I didn't understand. And I don't want to minimize anything because the pain that we feel now is very real and very hard. But I ask you the question that's on the screen. What are the way marks in my life? What are the way marks in your life? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the blessing, the privilege it is to be your children. I ask that you would be with each one of us here. Lord, it's a crazy world, to say the least. I thank you, Lord, that you are alive and well, that you are working. And just like Joshua and the Israelites of old, who you gave waymarks to, you have given us waymarks. You have given us things we can look at that remind us that you are alive and active in our lives. And Lord, there's a lot that happens that we don't understand. But I thank you that we can look at the way marks and know that your hand is over what's going on, over our lives, and that you will be faithful as you have in the past. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.